Hello, um, everyone. Hello and welcome to um, this podcast in a series of podcasts um, from Healthy London Partnership as part of the Ask About Asthma um, campaign for this year. Um, today, uh, we're talking about um, the really important subject of, of asthma deaths and what we have learned from uh, asthma deaths. My name's Oliver Anglin. I'm a GP in Camden. I'm the children's lead for North Central London, as well as a clinical lead for the Healthy London Partnership Asthma Programme. And I chair the London um, Asthma Leadership and Innovation Group. Um, today, to talk about this subject, I'm joined by um, Mark Levy. So, um, I'll, Mark, thank you so much for, for joining us. i um, like you to um, just take this opportunity to tell us a bit about yourself. Um, and then also, perhaps during this uh, challenging time that we've all been through recently with lockdown, etc. Um, let me know something that's got you through that period, perhaps something that's um, you found out about yourself or has helped you survive the last few months. So um, yeah, over to you, Mark, please tell us a bit about yourself. Hi, Oliver. I'm delighted to be here today and uh, uh, very pleased to be talking about asthma, which is my, uh, as you probably gather, is, is a very keen interest of mine. I've been a general practitioner for um, over 40 years in London having come from South Africa and uh, expecting to be uh, employed as a chess physician somewhere, but that never happened for lots of reasons. And so what happened was I started doing research in asthma from a very early stage of my career and was one of the six um, founder members of the GP in asthma group in 1987. And that group's now known as the Primary Care Respiratory Society. I edited their journal for 15 years. I've been on the British uh, Acute Asthma Guidelines up until 2016. I was on from the outset, and I'm also on the GINA um, uh, um, group, which is a strategy group which produces um, asthma guidance on an annual basis, updated on an annual basis. And um, more recently, well, so right from the beginning, I was interested in acute asthma. And um, I got involved in the National Review of Asthma Deaths as the, the lead investigator, which published uh, um, its report in 2014. Sadly, only one of our 19 recommendations has been partially implemented since then. And since the publication of uh, NRAD, I've been involved in, in four inquests into preventable child deaths and I have another one coming up in two weeks' time. And um, involvement in these inquests and the NRAD have really um, helped me to, um, how can I say, to, to colour my, my view of asthma care in the UK, which I think leaves a hell of a lot to be desired. You asked about uh, during COVID, and um, I've been locked down with my wife who's immune suppressed. And um, I've had a guitar for quite a while, but it's given me an opportunity to sit and make some noise. Although I must say I've had to make the noise with headsets on because otherwise the locks will get changed. Um, and uh, I'm enjoying my, my, uh, my experience of trying to become a rock and roll star. 
Well, look, thanks. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, Mark. Can you tell us a little bit about the um, uh, about you? You talked about the National Review of Asthma Deaths that you uh, led on a few years ago. I mean, can you tell us a bit about that? What you know, what what was what was that? How, where did that come from? Um, you know, what was the process? What was the what were the findings? Or the National Review of Asthma Deaths was something commissioned by the four governments in the UK on the basis of previous history of asthma deaths and also an ongoing review of asthma deaths in the east of England, which um, Shuev Nasser was involved. Brian Harrison was the lead for this. He was a consultant at Cambridge. And they were looking at all deaths in the east of England, interviewing the doctors, looking at the notes and finding some really concerning um, um, issues, in particular, that severe asthma was not being recognized and patients were not being referred to uh, specialists. And they published a paper on childhood asthma where there were 20 deaths in children. And of those, less than half had been referred to a specialist. They were all under the care of the GP, but less than half had been referred to a specialist. And the GPs in asthma group was partly to blame for the situation because we fought like anything in the 80s and early 90s to get asthma care moved from hospital to primary care. Now in the 90s, we had funding for trained asthma nurses in practice and we got paid for doing asthma clinics run by trained nurses. 80% of the nurses in the 90s doing asthma clinics were trained, i.e. had diploma level training. And so we thought that we were doing very well by doing so. Um, however, the National Review of Asthma Deaths, where we looked at all deaths in the whole of the UK during the year from February 2012, found that over two thirds of those deaths were, were potentially preventable. And preventable factors, were, it's not rocket science, um, uh, Oliver. You know, the preventable factors were um, lack of training of the individuals treating patients, lack of prescription of preventer medication, lack of provision of uh, good guided self-management plans. And um, so we made some recommendations, um, one of which um, was that anybody who's had two or more attacks of asthma in a year should be referred to a specialist. And yet, um, Imperial, Imperial College published a paper last year where less than 25%, these were adults, less than 25% of adults who had severe asthma were referred to a specialist. Now, this was published two years ago, you know, nearly six years after the publication of the National Review of Asthma Deaths. And um, I've been involved, as I say, in inquests and um, these inquests are all on, in the public domain on the Chief Coroner's website, so I'm not breaching any confidentiality, but Tamara Mills, who died in April 2014, just before we published the National Review of Asthma Deaths, had 47 asthma attacks in her last four years of life. And um, she was admitted five times to a hospital, and nobody thought of referring her to see a specialist. She saw a pediatrician with an interest in respiratory disease by accident. She wasn't referred to this pediatrician, but this pediatrician came on duty the day after she'd had a life-threatening attack and the consultant and anaesthetist saved her life. Sophie Holman 
whose uh, inquest was held last year, 2019 in January, had 48 um, asthma attacks in her 10 years of life. And nobody thought of referring her to a specialist. 28 of those attacks were treated in hospital. And um, the hospital pediatricians actually discharged her on three occasions because the parents didn't bring her to her appointments in hospital. So instead of alerting a safeguarding team, they kicked her out of hospital care. Michael Urielli, who was treated at the Royal Free and discharged, having had oxygen sets of 88% that morning, discharged back to his GP, who saw him, gave him high-dose bronchodilator in the surgery because he was short of breath the day after being discharged, and sent him home on an antibiotic and um, he died five days after being discharged. Now, these kind of stories, there aren't that many, but the asthma deaths, there are 40 asthma deaths in children in the UK every year. And all of those, with very, very few exceptions, are preventable deaths. And if you think about it, these deaths arise from asthma attacks. And so if we can abolish asthma attacks, which we should be able to. We can prevent hospital admissions, we can prevent the suffering that families go through. We can reduce a lot of work for the GPs and save a hell of a lot of money. And we can prevent these preventable deaths. With the NRAD, so you talked about some of the recommendations that that that, that you um, that were made by by that. What, what were the what were the, some of the kind of key learnings and key messages from from that report back in 2014? Well, the, the, when I was interviewed for that job, I was asked whether um, we would find anything new. And I said, probably not, but we'd have an opportunity to make a lot of noise and raise awareness. And to our surprise, we found two things which um, were not um, uh, clear to most clinicians. One was that short-acting beta agonists were being overprescribed. Now, to put that in perspective, we've known from research at that stage for 20 years that excess short-acting beta agonists um, were both a signal that things were going wrong, um, a sign that somebody might have severe asthma attack and even die from the disease. And yet, um, we had one person was prescribed 112 salbutamol inhalers in his last year of life. And um, just under half of those people got more than 12 inhalers in their last year of life, which is associated with asthma death. So that was the one thing, was excess prescription of short-acting beta agonists. And of course, asthma being an inflammatory disease, is not treated with short-acting beta agonists. These are emergency drugs, and they should only be used for emergencies or for uh, acute attacks. That's their role. And... Um, the other thing we found was under prescription and under collection by parents and patients of inhaled corticosteroids. Now, even a small dose of inhaled corticosteroid can help prevent an asthma death. So, well, one extra inhaled corticosteroid inhaler in six months reduces asthma deaths by about 56%. 
from your experience with these um with the work that you've done what are the, the 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 sort of changes we should expect to see um in um well let's start with primary care what are the changes that we need to see in primary care to um to see um to see this problem being dealt with well i'm glad you asked that because um i think at the moment asthma care in primary care is driven by quaff and um, one of the problems that GPs don't realize, and they probably realize it, but they don't do anything about it, is that asthma is not an acute disease. It's a chronic, ongoing, relapsing, recurring disease. And so in the UK, we tend to manage attacks okay, but then we don't follow up and we don't try and find out why the person had an attack. So if we see an asthma attack, as a signal that something serious has gone wrong, as a starting point, then we can move forward. Now, um, two things. I said quaff is what drives primary care at the moment. And I think quaff has been tragically the worst thing that could ever have, have happened for asthma. Because GPs are told, all you've got to do is tick these boxes and you'll be paid. And I heard a comment the other day from a, uh, a healthcare, um, he's, a, he's a pharmacist who works in practices. And um, to my horror, he said that he was told by one of the GPs that he works for, that all he has to do is ask the three RCP questions. Are you coughing today? Are you wheezing today? Is asthma interfering with your daily lifestyle? Tick those boxes and that's all that he has to do for asthma. Now, I've been mentoring this pharmacist for nearly two and a half years, and he is excellent. I mean, I would trust any patient with asthma in this guy's hands. He knows how to teach patients about their asthma, about their inhaler technique. He knows how to recognize danger signs. And most importantly, he knows when to call for help. And to be told, all you've got to do is ask these three questions when doing an asthma review, is it's horrified me. Because... One of the things that Gina highlighted about 12 years ago was that asthma control is not just how the person is at the moment. Now, in the UK, if you ask, I don't know if any of your other podcasts have covered this, but if you ask a UK doctor, how do you assess asthma control? They say you ask the three RCP questions or you ask the ACT, the asthma control test. Now, unfortunately, those questions only tell you how the person is at the moment or at most in the last four weeks. That's all that it does. So simply asking somebody once a year, how are you today, to find out how the asthma is controlled is insufficient. And what Gina recognized was that this was a problem. And so asthma control was defined in two domains. Current symptoms, i.e. the three questions or ACT, to include use of beta agonist bronchodilator, very important, which we picked up in, uh, in the NRAM, but also risk of future attacks. And the main risk of future attack is a previous attack. So if somebody is having an asthma review today and they're asked, how are you today? And the ACT score is fine, or they've got uh, negative answers to the three RCP questions. If that person is not asked, have you had any attacks in the last year? 
And had that person had an attack seven months ago, or even... What about the wider parts of the system? Um, where, where can there be improvements there, would you say? Can I, can I just come back to one point um, that you were just making? And um, I'd like to emphasize that it's, it's really the responsibility, this is according to the General Medical Council, of general practitioners to ensure that if they're delegating care to someone, they need to be sure that that person is capable of doing the task and competent to do the task they're delegated for. Yeah, so I think there's that point about uh, um, responsibility on the part of the general practitioners. And so the wider question, I mean, the problem we've got in the UK is really that asthma is not taken seriously. Um, asthma's on the forward plan, but it's there in words only. Um, in paediatrics, we have a severe shortage of access to um, specialist care. And um, GPs are not encouraged to refer patients to hospital or to specialists. They're encouraged to do as much as they can themselves. And now, even though asthma is a um, disease which should be managed in primary care, it is complex and somebody needs to understand the risk factors and needs to understand the way that the medication works. And, you know, inhaler technique is, is complex. And we've got, I think, 128 different inhalers available now. And so we've got a situation where we've got the payers, the moment the CCGs and future the networks, who are um, emphasizing the cost of drugs rather than looking at the whole picture the prescribing and the cost of secondary care utilization, because at the moment they're separate. And so you can save money by prescribing cheap inhalers and cheap drugs, um, but you end up having more hospital admissions. And in Canada, they demonstrated very nicely that the increased cost on combination inhaled corticosteroids and long-acting beta agonist was counteracted very markedly by reduced hospital costs. Um, so there's that aspect. Um, so it's lack of access to, to services, lack of expertise. I mean, GPs have become de-skilled in management of asthma. It's been delegated to nurses. And as I said earlier, in the 90s, it was very good because the nurses were trained. 80% of nurses were trained. Um, although 20% were providing asthma care with, without any training at all, which was a problem. But today, um, I haven't been able to get accurate figures, but estimates from nurse colleagues are that less than 5% of nurses doing asthma reviews in primary care have got any training in asthma. And that's competency-based training. They might have attended a half a day course or an hour's lecture here and there, but uh, they, they don't have diploma level training or competence level training. Um, so governments talk about um, asthma being important, but where's it on the agenda for local um, CCGs and networks? Um, asthma is just not featured. I mean, I was respiratory lead for a CCG for six years. I had nine different managers during those six years. We managed to do an audit which proved that following up children who were at risk um, could reduce admissions. We reduced admissions by 16% by simply identifying children 
who had risk factors which were modifiable, largely not being prescribed or not collecting in our corticosteroids. That was a simple problem. And we cut admissions by 16%. And um, I'm no longer working as respiratory advisor, but I think in the whole of Northwest London, I'm aware of one GP with an interest, a strong interest in asthma, but I'm not aware of any GP who has um, expertise in asthma at an expert level in, uh, in the area where I'm working. They're scattered throughout the country, but we need more. We've got lots of GPs who've got high levels of expertise in, um, in diabetes and cardiovascular disease and skin disease. But where are the gypsies in respiratory? You know, they're very few and far between. Um, and hospitals, you know, if you look at the way us was managed in accident and emergency, in particular in pediatrics, where from the BTS um, uh, audits, we know that about 20% of children are readmitted within three months of being discharged with acute asthma. Very few of them are followed up by specialists. They sent back to the practice to be seen by an untrained healthcare assistant or nurse or pharmacist after a discharge, sometimes after a severe acute attack. And I've seen this in particular in the, um, in the inquests that I've been involved in in depth, because in the inquests, as expert witness, I get to see all the records of the primary and secondary care, and I can see what's happened or what's been recorded as what's happened. Acute asthma severity is not assessed. The British sign guidelines have two tables, one for adults, one for children. I think at 12 and 17, I'm not sure, but I think those were the table numbers. But these tables detail very clearly what you should be assessing before, during, and after an acute asthma attack. Things like pulse, respiratory rate, blood pressure, um, oxygen saturation, peak flow, spirometry if you can do it, and some departments do spirometry for assessing acute attacks. And um, people are treated on symptoms of cough or wheeze and then sent home without any assessment before or after the treatment. So how do the doctors know that these people are better? And furthermore, um, if you ask any doctor how long does an asthma attack last, they can't tell you. But ask how many days of prednisolone do you prescribe? And people will say three days or five days or seven days. In most cases, three days. And yet, if you read the British uh, Thoracic Society and Science Guideline on Asthma in the UK, it says three days prednisolone is usually enough for children, but carry on until the attack is over. Now, that's been in the guidelines since 1995, as far as I'm aware. And yet, I, I think you can probably count on one hand the number of doctors in our area who prescribe more than three days prednisolone. And now we've got the other problem where some hospitals are prescribing dexamethasone for acute attacks. How, how's a GP going to know what to do when a child presents two days after being seen in casualty, having been given a dose of dexamethasone? I wouldn't know what to do. And how, how's the average GP going to know what to do? Do you carry on with more dexamethasone? Do you give prednisolone? And where's the evidence for this? There's one or two studies. What are the, the changes around that sort of stuff that you feel like there ought to be? What should, what should, we, what should we be doing differently? 
Okay, well, in essence, we need to understand and accept that asthma is a chronic disease. An acute attack needs to be treated, obviously, but the person treating it needs to think about the key question, really. Why did this person have an attack? And if you think about that while you're treating somebody, you can check the records if you're in primary care, see whether this person's been collecting medication, has it been prescribed? If you're in hospital, ask the parent, um, is this the first attack that this child has had? So you get an idea of how frequently this child is having this attack. Ask about medication. What do they take regularly? What do they take for um, acute care? What's the conditions at home? Is anybody smoking? Has this child got other comorbid conditions, allergic rhinitis or um, food allergy? Is there something else going on? And if the doctor treating the attack starts thinking along those lines, they might in their discharge letter, rather than just sending a note to the GP saying um, acute asthma, um, home, which a lot of the discharge notes say, um, they could say, um, refer this child. This child's had three attacks in the last year. So instead of the number that we see on the top of the A&E discharge note showing that this child's been in 14 times in the last year, instead of just sending that letter out without a comment, just say, this child needs specialist input. Consider referring the child. In primary care, we're in much better position because we've got more information. And so just simply treating that attack is not enough. And that post-attack review within 48 hours is intended for two purposes. One is, is the attack over? If not, you've got to do something about it, either send the person back to hospital or extend the oral corticosteroid. And why did it happen? If this child's parents are not collecting medication, you need to raise a safeguarding issue. This child depends on the parents to ensure that the medication is collected and that they're taking it regularly. Check the inhaler technique. If they're not using the drug correctly, it's not going to work. And so just we need to change the mindset. And we also need to encourage referral. Now, severity applies both to the severity of the attack if someone's having an acute, severe, or life-threatening attack, or has any features, these features are all independent. So if the oxygen sats are low, or if the respiratory rate is fast, or any of the other factors in the BTS sign tables are present, make sure that child is referred to a specialist there and then. Mark, thinking, thinking about the future, what would you... What does the, the the kind of shiny bright future for children's asthma look like for you? What would you what would you want what would you want to see our, our system look like in the future so that we can prevent all of this? Well, I, th I think we should probably start with raising awareness amongst parents um, and making sure that parents know what they should expect from their healthcare professional with regard to asthma. They need to know and understand what the disease is and that it can kill and um, that it can cause uh, severe attacks. So education of families is very important. I think trying to change things at government level is probably a non-starter. They haven't done anything 
for 50 years, it's unlikely they're going to do anything in the future. So um, driving from patient upwards, I think, is, is a key factor. General practitioners, I think, need to take more responsibility for care uh, for people with asthma and need to understand it's not just a tick box disease. And the networks offer an opportunity. I mean, the, the coroner in Sophie Holman's case made a recommendation that networks should have access to specialist respiratory services. And I think um, to leave to chance that CCGs or networks will make these services available is probably uh, um, not going to help. I think the GPs need to be driving for this. They need to be insisting on appropriate uh, access to services. Healthy London has been working I mean, I've been involved for many years with Healthy London. We've been working very hard. We produced asthma um, asthma standards. Are they followed? No, as far as I can see, they aren't. And we've got to find a way of ensuring that the doctors want to treat asthma better. There's nothing better than having a child who's well and coping with the disease and managing to participate in games and to stay in school, attend school, not have spoiled nights and spoiled holidays. There's nothing better for a GP than the satisfaction of having patients who are well managed and well looked after. Thanks for all of that, Mark. And um, I really appreciate you um, you coming along um, and um, and being and being part of this. Your your ongoing support for for the work across London's appreciated. But again, particularly for for joining us and taking giving us the opportunity to talk to you. Um, about you know with with all of your experience from from your work with um asthma and, and particularly around asthma deaths so thank you so much it's been a real um, pleasure to listen to all of that um and uh look forward to seeing you uh, in the flesh at some point in i hope not the not too distant future um so yes thank you and thank you mark levy good Oliver. thank you very much for having me so that brings us to the end of this podcast but we do have a number of other podcasts available for you to listen to um, which you can access on the Healthy London Partnership website at healthylondon.org. Uh, we have one on working across the system, uh, learning from the Tower Hamlets experience. We have one on air quality and what we've learned from COVID. Uh, we have one on asthma-friendly schools and Ask the Expert uh, podcast, where we have a panel answering questions from parents and, and children. Um, and then a uh, podcast around tertiary care and the role of tertiary care in, in uh, supporting children with asthma and where that sits in the wider system. So plenty there to have listened to. Um, I look forward to um, speaking to you on one of those.